Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. Today we have a really special guest, someone that I didn't know going into the podcast. And by the end of our time together, my heart, I can't even tell you what it's feeling right now. So I'm taping the intro after talking to Dr. Christian Conte, and I feel touched. It's deep. This is going to be a podcast that you want to be able to sit with, you want to be able to feel into, you want to be able to sense it, like give yourself some time. If you don't have the time to be touched deeply right now, put this on away, go to another one and come back when you do have time. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Conti. He's one of the most accomplished mental health specialists in the field of anger and emotional management. He's been on many popular TV and radio shows. He's a prolific writer, a communicator, and he has worked with groups of violent offenders in the prison system. He has worked in the classroom with college students. He was a tenured professor when he decided to leave academia and open the doors to many new beginnings that he didn't know were waiting for him, but he'll tell you that story too. He works for companies, he works for organizations, he works for professional sports teams, and basically he helps people to understand their emotional management. And he's created this theory called yield theory. And we're going to talk in depth about yield theory, but it has so many similarities to what we believe in yoga. You know, what it starts with is you don't know what you don't know. In yoga, we call this avidya, that you think your opinion, or I think my opinion is the right one. It's the center of the universe. I'm smart. I figured it out. It's actually saying is, yeah, you know a little bit about you. You know a little bit about the world you've created around yourself. But actually, there's so much more to know. There's so much more we don't know. And so when Dr. Conti goes into training policemen, military, all sorts of people on how to de-escalate violence and how to basically have a human connection, he uses this yield theory, which boils down to, can you listen? Can you have the humility to listen? and not come into the situation and say, I know what's going on, but rather to say, what is going on? What's happening here? And being open and humble enough to listen. And that could be the policemen who have entered a, a really dangerous situation. That could be you and your spouse. That could be you and your child. It doesn't matter. It works for all of it. So listen, then validate. Validate their human experience take their perspective. In yoga, we call this pratipaksha bhavana, which is to take the opposite perspective. Step out of your shoes, step into theirs. See what you can understand about them. Doesn't mean you can't set boundaries, but it means to have a non-judgmental attitude to let go of your ideas and really understand the world from their viewpoint. And again, he's teaching this to people all over the world in really, really difficult situations. And then third, exploring options together. If we do this, this might happen. If you do that, that might happen. Not telling them what to do, not telling them what their outcome is going to be, not saying, here's what I think you should do, but let's look from this moment, being present in this moment, how can you move forward for more success and a better outcome? And you can imagine the variety of situations that we're talking about from talking to your teenager all the way to talking someone that maybe has a gun that you're trying to talk them off the ledge to get them to not go forward with what they're planning to do. I mean, the yield theory can cover many different mental health situations. So we get really deep in this interview. As I said, I was just touched so emotionally to me, what Dr. Kanti is showing us is Raja Yoga, how to control your mind, how to get more clear perception, how to have non-attachment so that you can be open to what actually is instead of what you're, you know, wanting it to be. 
your agenda to just step back and say, okay, I have no attachment here. I'm going to try to look at this situation for what it really is and see if we can get clarity and move forward together. So it's deeply about human connection and the way that we show up in the world. And for me, all of this fits right into yoga philosophy. So even though Dr. Kanti is a Zen Buddhist, I think these two, you know, you've been hearing on the podcast for many weeks now about Buddhism and yoga philosophy, and there's so many similarities. Not surprisingly, they both come from India and they both were not too far apart. And so in time and space. So it's not surprising that there's so many overlapping themes. I know you're going to enjoy this interview and I look forward to hearing how it landed for you too. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to be involved in the Optimal Estate community, we have a weekly yoga therapy clinic. We have a mobile app called the Optimal State and many other ways you can get involved with our Optimal State community. Come to www.theoptimalstate.com and find out ways that you can get involved with us. Thank you for listening and we welcome you to this episode. Welcome, Dr. Christian Conte. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Good. You're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I understand. And I am. I was just telling you before we started talking here live that we are moving from California back to the Midwest, to Minneapolis area. And you started to tell me a story that I would love for you to just tell our audience, because when you were telling it, I was like, people need to hear that it's okay (laughs) to make big change, to take risks, to move into the unknown. So can you, can you go back to what you were telling me? Absolutely. So I was a tenured professor in the counselor education department at the university of Nevada. And career-wise, I just was loving everything I was doing. I ran a mental health organization in Reno. I co-founded a center for people convicted of violent crimes in South Lake Tahoe, California. And I was already a professional speaker and I was busy all the time. And my wife and I, who in a few weeks, we will celebrate our 23rd anniversary. And after we were out there and our daughter was very young at the time, and we went on a trip, actually we toured through California. And we just spent like a couple of weeks going around all over California. And at one point we just sat down and I said to my wife, what is it that you really want to do? And she said, because I had just gotten tenure, I had a job for life out there. And she said, I really want to move back home. And listen, she followed me everywhere. So why not you know, do what she wanted to do as well? And so that was the best decision for us. We picked up, I was 38 years old. I had a solid job, you know, to get a tenure job for life. Had a lot of things going well career-wise, but we made the move to put family first. And I'll be honest, I was home for about a week and I thought, oh my goodness, what did I do? I literally just gave up my whole career. But one thing I always rely on is I really work hard. I don't focus on what's not working. I don't focus on what can't be done. It is ingrained in me to only focus on what can be done. So. I love to teach and I really love being a professor. I love the teaching part. I wasn't you know, thrilled about all the bureaucratic stuff as a university professor, but I love the teaching. So one day my wife, we were going to take our daughter to the new school, to the grade school, to have her introduce her to her teachers and principal. And I never dress up. Like I'm a t-shirt and jeans guy, I always have been. I've probably worn a tie about a handful of times in my life. So, but my wife said, listen, we're going to this school and I'm going to introduce you as Dr. Conti. We're going to make sure that uh, they treat our daughter well, you know, just that kind of old time philosophy. So I said, okay, so I've got to put on a tie. My wife asked me where a tie I'm wearing. I go in there. Now, when we came home from the meeting, I thought, well, this kind of looks sharp. I should make a YouTube video. (laughs) So I sat down and I made my first YouTube video. And from that video, I didn't have 13 hits on it before 2020 called me to ask me to do an interview. And then I got calls from like reality show people. I ended up doing a reality show called Coaching Bad on Spike Network. 
Ray Lewis, Hall of Fame linebacker, and I, he's a great motivator. I'm an anger management specialist. So we took these coaches that screamed at little kids and we kind of taught them a better path. <laughs> and then from there, I kind of did a lot of different, I did things, different TV shows, but I specialize in working with people convicted of violent crimes. And my passion has always been helping the prison system. So to this point, and now I train all the officers in the 24 state prisons in the state of Pennsylvania. I train all the officers in an approach called yield theory that I developed. And I work with all the incarcerated people to help them, you know, choose a different path and gain the tools necessary to take a different path. But I have a real diverse career now. I mean, I work in the world of sports. I do sports psychology. I work with really as top businesses I consult. I'm doing more consultation these days than anything else and speaking. So that's a bit about my background. That's a whole bunch, I guess. Okay. So when you left this safe tenured position <laughs> that you could have had for life, did you have any idea that all of this would open up to you? None. Absolutely none. You know, I had a PhD. I knew that as a licensed professional counselor, it was possible for me to set up and do private practice. I had always done private practice. I never let that go. So I knew there was at least something to fall back on. But I knew that I also liked doing many other things. Like I'm a writer, I'm an author, and I love to write. I had published my first textbook while I was a professor. And I wanted to pursue more writing. I wrote a book called Advanced Techniques for Counseling and Psychotherapy, 2008. But I wanted to pursue more writing as well. But I didn't know. No, I did not know. Matter of fact, I have a Eurobarus as one of my tattoos. And a Eurobarus, if you're not familiar with that, is a snake eating its tail. And it is a powerful image or symbol of transformation and change. And I once had a dream about the Eurobarus that was really awakening for me. And it was so powerful, I ended up getting it tattooed on me. And I noticed that through my life that the universe seemed to reward taking those risks. Like if you can trust in doing the right thing, making the right decision, then you're not alone. And I think that's where people, where I would offer people some support is that yes, making a different decision is scary as can be, you know, my wife always says the best things lay outside our comfort zone. So we got to get there, <laughs> but it's worth it. And I don't think we're as alone as we might feel in those moments of like, oh no, what if I make this huge decision and I'm wrong? But I guess I just believe, I trust that if I do the right things and I work hard, things will unfold. And I've experienced that my whole life. I just turned 50 last week and my, my whole life, things have seemed to unfold like that. Do you think some of that is your mindset? I mean, in yogic philosophy, it sounds, some people don't like to hear this, but basically your inner world and how you think and how you approach the world and your perception helps to create your outer world. I mean, it seems like common sense, but some people, because their outer world is not going very well, that sounds almost like victim blaming. But do you think it's your mindset and the way you approach things that it is a hundred percent and it's difficult in a world where information gets passed so quickly that people can take and twist and interpret things however they want but the reality is that by you saying that our inner world helps us create our outside world that's not victim blaming that's not what it is what it's saying is you are the only person in the history of humanity who has unrestricted access to your mind and we see in the outside world what we think we're going to see. We look to see it. There's a Zen tale of a man who comes into this town. And as he's approaching the outskirts of the town, he sees an old Zen monk. And he says to him, what kind of people are in this town? I'm moving in here. And the Zen master asked him, he said, well, what kind of people do you think will be in this town? And he said, I think I came from a place where there were robbers and thieves and people were rude and they were just mean, selfish people. And the Zen master said, well, you will find that here. And so the guy goes along his way. And not long after, another stranger stumbles into the same path and sees the same Zen master. And he too is moving into the town and he asks him, hey, I'm moving into this town. What kind of people are going to be there? And he said, what kind of people do you think will be there? He said, I think there will be loving, kind people. I think there will be people who are compassionate and forgiving and loyal. 
And the Zen master looked at him and said, you will find those people here. And it's a really powerful tale to see that we find what we're looking for. And it happens time and again, over and over again to all people. I've worked with thousands of people all over the world, more than 20,000 hours of clinical one-on-one experience. I have seen a tremendous amount of still many eons to see more. But what I've seen throughout my life is the common factor is that you are the one common factor in all of your experiences. And what's going on internally, the outside world is a reflection of that because it's all happening. It's just a matter of what you're looking to confirm. Mm. And there are situations like we're seeing in Israel and Gaza right now where maybe people don't have total control over their outside you know, what's going on for them. The thing I always tell my students is what we can control, what we can work on, we should. The rest, it's going to be what it's going to be. But we do have a lot more control than we think. We absolutely do. So let's say someone's struggling with a lot of anxiety and anger and resentment. That person is likely to hear you and me talking about how we create our internal world. And they're likely to say, so does that stop the bullets from flying if I just think them away? And of course not, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying is that even in the midst of horrific situations, how you view them, what you're looking for. Viktor Frankl said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he survived the concentration camps and his family had been killed, taken from him. And he became a really world famous psychologist, psychiatrist who wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he said, in the concentration camps we saw, and we're talking about the worst of human suffering, people doing just unimaginable things to others. He said, we saw others who would comfort others in their final moments. We saw people who would steal other people's last piece of bread. And he said, we who survived the concentration camps learned one thing, that everything can be taken from a man except one thing, the ability to choose how he feels in any given set of circumstances, the ability to choose one's own way. And so his message was, we can't control what happens to us in life but we can always control what we do with what happens to us in life. Beautifully said. I love that book. So So, the email that you wrote to me, I'm going to read down when we were kind of going back and forth about what we might talk about. You wrote the world boils down to two kinds of people, people with issues and dead people, LOL. (laughs) (laughs) So we all have issues and it's not about having issues. It's about how we deal with them that matters. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. So I've used that as a humorous tagline for, let's see, January will be 26 years now doing the work I'm doing. So 26 years, I've been running around saying there are two kinds of people, people with issues and dead people. I say it in a humorous way, but it also underlies the exact foundation of my belief system. It's not one up, one down. When people come to me, it's not like, They come to me, I have the answers and I'm telling them, like, I believe we're all in this life together. We're able to help each other out. From the outside, it's certainly easier to see clearer with what's going on in people's lives because when we're in it, it's actually a neurological reason. When we're in it, we're steeped in the emotional center of our brain. It's a real basic neuroscience. If there are some neuroscientists out there and they start twitching, I want to be clear, this is an oversimplification to make the point. But we have essentially an emotional center of our brain where all the emotional stuff happens. And then we have a higher level thinking center of our brain, the frontal cortex, where our higher level decision-making occurs. And when we are steeped in the emotional center of our brain, we often make irrational, impulsive, reactive decisions. But when we're in a frontal cortex, a high level thinking, we're able to make clearer decisions. And essentially what I've done for 26 years as a professional counselor is people come in and they're in that emotional center oftentimes. I'm able to really put myself behind their eyes mentally, but ultimately I'm doing so from an intellectual perspective so that I'm able to help them make clearer decisions or at least say, here are some options. You know, oftentimes when people are in crisis, they don't recognize the options and it's understandable. It's because the emotional intensity is so impactful. If I wrote a book called Walking Through Anger and my wife loves it, she says, I wish it wasn't called just walking through anger because I think 
people think that might not be for them. But the truth is it's about how to handle any intense emotion that we all have. It's about how to handle your own emotions and how to handle other people's intense emotions. And it really is about that concept, what I wrote to you about. We all struggle with issues. Ego is often at the center of our struggles. And the question is, how do we get around the ego and get to the part that really matters? Yeah. And when you wrote this book, Walking Through Anger, do you talk about the top-down approach and the bottom-up, meaning the thinking mind telling the body, okay, here's what's going on, versus the body almost has a mind of its own through the vagus nerve and heart rate variability and all of this, and it's telling the mind what's going on. Do you work both directions? Absolutely. So I say, you know, I was heavily influenced by cognitive behavioral therapy when I was going through school. I love it. It's helpful. I've certainly drawn on it and utilize it. But I also say, so in cognitive behavioral therapy, might sound fancy to anybody listening who's not familiar with it. Cognitions are your thoughts, behaviors are your actions. Essentially, what it teaches is that your thoughts determine how you feel. It's not the outside world that makes you feel a certain way. It's what you tell yourself about the outside world. And so it's a wonderful, helpful philosophy and approach to psychology. And I certainly draw from it. But one of the things that I do with yield theory is that differs a little bit from cognitive behavioral therapy is I believe that your mind always wants to match your body. And that hits on the part that you just talked about, which is, let's say, this is just, it's fascinating because as diverse as we might think we are as individuals, the reality is we have a lot of similarities amongst all of us. So if you've ever gotten into an argument with your loved one, because one of you was hungry, they call it hangry, right? (laughs) It's you got agitated and irritable. And the reason why that happened was this, your body was hungry, which registers in a part of your brain called the hypothalamus. Sounds fancy, but just hear this. It's steeped in the middle of your emotional center. So it makes a lot of sense that when you're hungry, you're agitated, irritable. And then when I say your mind wants to match your body, it's this, when your body already feels agitated and irritable, your mind will race to make up a story to match your body. I must feel this way because of what you just said. I must feel this way because we never finished that argument. And so we start to create a narrative that matches how we feel. So yes, and it's to me, especially as a person who taught systems theory for so long, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Sometimes our minds, our words are creating how we feel. And other times our body feels a certain way. So our mind races to match, to make up a story. And I think it's really powerful to understand this. Yeah. I mean, some neuroscientists say that most of our thoughts are just us making up stories to match what the sensations and feelings in our bodies are. And that a lot of times those stories are not even true. I have found that to be the case, and not just in the work I've done for 26 years, but in my own life. Like my wife and I are more happily married now than we've ever been. It's been almost 23 years together, married 25 years together. And we have practiced this throughout our entire relationship where instead of arguing unnecessarily, if one of us is hungry or overly tired, we look at each other and say, listen, I am so hungry right now. You look like a piece of pizza to me. Like if I come across agitated, it is not you. It is me. If I bite you. (laughs) Yeah, if I bite you, that's just because I think you're a piece of pizza. But we've learned to put humor on it and it radically changed our relationship because now instead of making up arguments, and I can't tell you for how many people throughout the world, I have a YouTube channel and I'm blessed to hear from people all over the world. And I cannot tell you how many people write in and say that that radically changed their relationship by learning how to say, you know what, I'm honestly, it's not you, it's me right now. I feel really agitated and irritable and my mind's racing to make up a story. And once we become aware of it, things can shift. But as you know, and as the entire practice of yoga is devoted to, it's not about just simply knowing it or hearing it once or twice up here. It's about actually living it. And I can tell you a story and I would invite the listeners to recognize that how you hear me tell this story will say a lot about you. All right. So there was a haughty know-it-all professor 
And he wanted to find out about Zen. So he went to see a Zen master. And this professor was all stuffy and, you know, kind of just, he knew everything, right? So he went and he started asking the Zen master about what is Zen? What is Zen? Blah, blah, blah. Well, the Zen master couldn't even get out an answer because the guy just kept talking over him and over him. So finally, he started to pour him a cup of tea and the professor still blah, 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 blah. So finally, the tea starts to overflow and the professor says, whoa, the tea's overflowing. And the Zen master said that cup is like your mind. As long as it's already filled up, there's gonna be no room to put anything new in it. If you really wanna understand, you have to empty the cup. Now, the reason why I say that story, you can tell a lot about yourself by hearing that story is this. That's a super common story. Most people have heard that story many times before. But the question is this. Well, let me tell you an experience I had with it. So I speak all over. And I tell a lot of stories, as you can probably tell already. <laughs> I like to tell stories. I love to teach through storytelling. I think it's difficult to have to sit and listen to a lecture or you know my presentation. So I've always integrated stories to make it interesting. Well, about eight or 10 years ago, I was in my library and I was getting ready to go speak somewhere. And I was going through one of my books of stories. And I came across that story and it said, empty your cup. And I thought to myself, I know this story. I've known this story since I was a kid. I've written about this story. I've made videos on this story. And I almost went to turn the page when it hit me profoundly like a ton of bricks. My cup was full. I thought I already knew it. And mm -hmm. so I thought, I'm letting my ego get in the way. So I emptied my cup. I went back. I re-listened to the story as though I never heard it. And I heard it on such a deeper, more profound level. And we think how many times do we encounter information and maybe it's the second time. So our mind, our ego specifically races to say, I know that I got it. I got it. I got it. But in the practice of yoga, in the practice of Buddhism, I'm a practicing Zen Buddhist. And in the practice of Buddhism, our goal is to empty our cup constantly, to have that beginner mind, to be able to encounter information and say, wow, I'm learning it in a whole different way. But of course, the more insecure we are, we have to race to tell everybody what we already know rather than, wow, I can see it slightly different this time. So it's interesting, I think. You know, when you were talking about the relationships and not telling stories about, you know, how I'm feeling in relationship, I thought, really, it starts with us. What stories am I telling Amy about Amy when I'm having certain feelings and emotions? And you know, could I empty my cup and just say, yeah, I'm not going to go with that story. I'm just going to be me, as you said, do the right thing, work hard, show up. And all the stories that are floating around in my mind, maybe I just kind of let those go and just keep showing up and working hard and see what happens. That's a beautiful way to say that. It really is. I think that's something that I would invite listeners to even rewind that section and have you say that again so that you can hear that time and again. So one way we practice this, let's say in a counseling session, is I like to be, and it's always been kind of an active therapist. So I wanted to make the experience of counseling something that would be memorable for people. So I would use my chairs in my office a lot. So I'd say, okay, so let's sit in this chair and let's run with the story that you're telling yourself. Okay, now let's just jump in this other chair and now let's do it differently. Let's tell this story that you chose to have every one of these obstacles because your higher self said, oh boy, this is exactly what you need to become X. Now tell me the story from that perspective. And sometimes we'd do three or four of those. But then people could come back and say, you get to pick whatever story you want to tell yourself walking out of here. And again, if I could reach into your listeners' hearts and have them hear this, if you're struggling, again, anxiety, depression, anger, then you're likely to hear that you and I might be saying, well, just do this. And that's not what we're saying. It's not a just. It is a profoundly difficult thing to do. But what I would imagine that you would agree with me on is it's possible to do. And by practicing the possibility of telling yourself a different narrative, you can teach yourself that you absolutely have a say over how you experience this world. So I think many of us listening are sitting in the comfort of our own homes or we're walking or we're listening in the car and thinking, 
I just don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I have the mental strength and consistency and mental stability to do that. But you have been teaching this. You specialize in working with people who've been convicted of violent crimes. Like, are they able to do it? Or is it maybe even easier for them? Because look, what are the options here? I might as well go for it. So that's a great question. I would say many of them would argue that it is more difficult because sometimes it is recognizing that change. And to put it in context for those who are listening, I quite literally work with some of the most violent people on the planet. So we're talking about life sentences, double life, triple life sentences, death row. We're talking about people who have done unimaginably horrific things to others. and. Sometimes people hold on to that perspective because that's the story they've told themselves and they're afraid that if they tell themselves a different story and they start to see the world differently, it would shake their meaning. And that can go for somebody in a positive direction, a negative direction, or a neutral direction. And it is much like a gambler who keeps gambling and says, I've already lost a lot of money. I know this machine isn't going to hit but I'm afraid to acknowledge that it's not working because then I have to recognize I lost all this stuff ahead of time. And we see this with people's perspectives constantly. Once they've bought into their side of, let's say politics, they buy into their side long enough, even if they're presented with information that shows them that they were off in what they saw, they're afraid to let go because what would that mean about me if I, and it really is just about ego. It's not about who you are. It's not about your essence. It is about ego. And that's hard for all of us to challenge our own egos. Can you tell us a story about someone who basically had a story, it wasn't working for them. Maybe they had lost everything, even for this life. Were any of them able to acknowledge that confirmation bias and just say, look, for whatever it's worth, I'm going to change my perspective and try to see a different meaning and purpose in this life? Countless times, countless times. I'll tell you something that jumped to mind. I want to say this. One of the things that I do, and I think when you go to see a counselor or if if you, you do this with yourself, with compassion, a lot of times people are afraid to even say the story, the alternate story, whatever the fears are. They may be irrational fears, but they're your fears nonetheless. But when you sit with someone, for example, someone sits with me, I have no judgment for you. I have zero judgment. So when you sit with someone who really isn't judging you, you can say that story. And if you're wrong, okay, let's try a different story. Make yourself think of 10 stories. And if you only come up with three, hey, that's two more than you had. So I want to say that to be clear. And if you say, maybe there are listeners, again, when you're feeling stuck, the mind comes up with excuses, excuses. They say, well, I don't have anybody who's non-judgmental in my life. Okay, I respect that. But you can sit in front of a mirror and you can be that non-judgmental person for yourself. So I remember one time I was working with a woman who had gone through a lot of domestic violence. She was from a small town. She never left that small town, literally never left that small town. She had a teenage son and she was afraid to go outside of the town. She had an abusive father who had passed away. She was divorced from a man who was highly abusive and would literally tell her she wasn't allowed to go. There was a place up in the mountains that people would go and she wasn't allowed to go there, whatever, like a resort type place. And she wasn't, you know, quote unquote, allowed to go. So we talked about how to break these chains. Actually, I used Plato's allegory, the cave for her. And I'll go over that if if you want me to, but just in case people are familiar, let me get to this part of the story. We talked about her breaking her chains. So she went and sat at the base of the mountain in her car. The following week she came back, she told me about it. She said, I was trembling. I wasn't allowed to go. I couldn't make myself go. So what we did in the session was we visualized her being at the base of the mountain, experiencing those thoughts. But then we told her we had a new story which was all of a sudden I was able to shed that old belief system. And my new belief system was, yes, I actually can step on the gas and go. And I'll tell you one of my most exciting moments, and this had to be 15 years ago, but one of my most exciting moments as a counselor was when she came back in, her face was lighted up. She said, you're never gonna believe this. I went up the mountain, I was able to do it. I hesitated for a moment, but I just told myself that story we practiced, I hit the gas, I went. She ended up getting, let's say this next several months, she got a job 
for Walmart where she was a part of a traveling team. So she then had an experience to go all throughout the country. And this was something like she never even dreamed was possible. And that was one of the most encouraging moments that I remember. Tons of them. I mean, that we do see tons of them, but I'll never forget her face when she came back in and she was able to go up that mountain. It was so symbolic to cross the line that was essentially a mental line, but she was able to do it. And so many people can overcome their fears. Well, now we have to go back to Plato and the cave briefly. Okay, sure, sure. So Plato had the allegory of the cave, book 25 of the Republic. Here's what he said. Now, listen, human beings daydream. So when I'm teaching, I always like clap or knock because whether you're really dialed in or not, in eight minutes, your mind's going to start to drift. So I'm going to bring people's attention back to this moment because I want you to hear, (laughs) yeah, this was just a thought experiment. This is just a twisted thought experiment, but here's what he said. He said, imagine if you take people and you imprison them in a cave from the time they're very young and you fashion them in a way that they really can't move and they're only facing the back wall of the cave. Now, there's a fire burning outside of the cave, so when people walk by, they cast shadows on the walls in front of the prisoners. And the prisoners, again, not even aware of each other, they grow up their whole lives seeing the shadows on the wall in front of them and hearing the voices, so they come to know the shadows as reality. And then what he said next is the most important part. He said, what if you take one of those prisoners one day and set them free? And they come out of the cave and their eyes have to adjust to the light. And then they see these weird human beings talking rather than their shadows. Where do you think they're going to want to go? Right back to that cave. And when you first hear the story, so why would anyone go in a cave? But that cave is our ego. Think of this world. We live in a solar system that has... So far, I love to ask people, how many planets do we have? We can get educated people and I say eight, nine, whatever you, the International Astronomical Union currently recognizes eight regular sized planets, six dwarf planets, one of which Ceres is bigger than Pluto, hundreds of planets on the outer rim. That's just our solar system that sits in a galaxy with an estimated 175 billion suns. And we know that there are at least two trillion galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of suns. So the amount of life, the amount of everything that's going on in this universe is beyond anything we can fathom. So what do we do? Our ego brings it right back down to whatever I believe is right. Whatever I say is correct. If I think about something a certain way, that must be true. Well, that is essentially Plato's cave. And to let go and recognize that maybe we don't have all the answers right now. Maybe we could learn something new. That's a very scary thing for people to let go and say, maybe I believe this my whole life, but maybe it's not accurate, or maybe there's more to learn from it. That's a very scary thing. So we keep ourselves in prison in those caves and our shadows become our certainties and we cling to those. But even Robert Burton, who was a world famous neuroscientist, he wrote a book called On Being Certain. And in it, he talked about how 35 years of neuroscience and research demonstrated to him that when people said they were certain about something, that actually the emotional part of their brain was lighting up. So we might think that we're intellectual and rational and logical when we're being certain, but Mm -hmm. he discovered neurologically we're being emotional. And I think that's fascinating because that comes back to what the Buddha taught. That comes back to what you teach in yoga, which is Mm non-attachment. Doesn't mean you can't believe something. It doesn't mean you can't believe something very strongly. It means that you're open that there's a possibility there's more that you don't yet understand and believe it, but you don't have to be attached to it. I am not my things, right? I'm not my outfit. I'm not my property, but I'm also not my thoughts too. So if you challenge my thoughts, I don't need to get defensive because, Hey, I'm not attached to my thoughts. Now, if we are attached to our thoughts and you challenge them, I say, these are my thoughts, you know, (laughs) why do you challenge my thoughts? But it's a part of it. So we're all kind of breaking free from Plato's cave and it's a powerful journey, but it's possible. It's absolutely possible. So Christian, I have a child development question for you. And it's something I've seen with my clients over the years, not just children, but a lot of adults too, that if someone has no identity, if they don't know who they are, if they kind of are like a chameleon and they just blend into whatever everybody else wants them to be at any given time. I find that it's helpful for them to 
find some identity, you know, two or three stakes in the ground that they can kind of hang their identity on to figure out who am I? What do I love? What are my preferences? You know, what am I attached to? What am I averse to? And it's almost like they need to go through forming an identity and an ego, as we both say in Zen Buddhism and yoga, before they can realize what an illusion that is, and then eventually decide to go down the path of letting that go. What do you think of that? I think you're 100% right. So I'll try to teach, and this sometimes can get a little bit more advanced than what people are ready to take in. But the ego is not wrong and bad. What the ego is, it is limiting. But there are times when the ego can be very helpful for us. The ego can give us the confidence to attempt something. The ego can help us set a goal to push us to become the best versions of ourselves. But it's remember, it's not an either or, but a both and. So in the instances, what you're talking about, I think that would be a very, very wise approach for a young person to hold on to something. What is it that I like? What are some of those things? What is my identity? Irrespective of what other people are telling me my identity needs to be. But then at the end of the day, we have to recognize that our ego is limited. And so whether you call it the self, the true self or essence, the essence or true self, the center of who we actually are is Karen Horney, neo-Freudian. Uh, she wrote a book on neurosis and human growth. She says that the self is the alive, unique center of who we are, the only part of us that can and wants to grow. So we have, if you think of an iceberg, the center of the part that's above the water. So the above the water's consciousness, right? It's not very much. And you think of a giant iceberg, there's not a lot that's above the water. But if you put a mark right in the middle of that iceberg, the part that's above water, that's your ego. The ego is the center of what you know, of what you're aware or center of consciousness. But if you step back and you see that that iceberg is way bigger than just the part that sticks out of the water and you draw a circle in the middle of the entire iceberg, well, that would be analogous to the self, the true self or the essence. And we are so much more than we are aware. And the goal really is to kind of let that water line go down and down so that we can live more authentically to our true selves. And that's why I really love the way you say that balance. And that's, again, obviously from your practice and your experience and you living your message, you recognize the balance that we can use the ego, we can learn from it and grow, but at the same time, we are not bound by it. Yeah. You know, in yoga philosophy, we call it the ahankara, this thing that helps you survive in the world and that there's in this human form, there's a certain amount of ahankara or ego that we need to even make it through the world in this human form. But we should also keep in mind that that's all it is. We don't need to grow it bigger and bigger and bigger. And as you say, think we know everything. We know nothing. Yeah, I love that. I love the way you phrased it. I was working with an NBA team, professional basketball players. And I remember this young NBA player came up to me and he said, Doc, I love what you're saying, but I feel like I need my ego. My ego helps me do well on the court. And I said, absolutely, use your ego on the court. If that gets you that motivation, what I want you to understand is that is not the entirety of who you are. So if your ego helps you in that way, wonderful. If it helps you because your ego sets a bar and you say, I really want to achieve this goal. I want to work really hard in school and I want to become this. And is that an egoic picture? Sure. Is that wrong or bad? Not at all. Strive to do that. Just understand there's a deeper part of you. There's more to you than just that. But by all means, if that part helps your path, embrace it. Embrace it. It's funny because I love this discussion and it's heartwarming to have it with somebody who understands it and with an audience that understands it. But oftentimes I'm working with people who are so angry that I have to talk about minimizing that ego and setting that ego aside because mm -hmm. how much conflict arises because of ego. Well, I'm right, you're wrong. I need you to think, feel, believe, and behave the way I want you to, <laughs> and rather than how people actually do. So it's really nice to be able to embrace the entirety of that, what is called the human psyche, that iceberg, the human psyche, the essence of who we are. Let's go back to what you just said, because I think even though we're capable of this, those of us who are in Zen or yoga, we are striving for this. 
there's also parts of us in times where we're not doing this. So let's go back to your the yield theory that you've come up with, because I think we all need those kinds of skills. Okay, great. So I developed something back, it came to me in a meditation in 1998. I spent my entire career refining it, revising it. Walking through anger is all about yield theory. Here's what yield theory is in a nutshell. Essentially, it is a way to communicate with people by getting around their fight or flight response so that you can speak in a way that you can be heard regardless of the intensity of the emotions that that person is experiencing or that maybe even you're experiencing. It's about meeting people where they are, leading with humility and curiosity to, again, get around that fight or flight response and speak in ways that can be heard. So a simple way I tell this is this. If a bear walked in the room right now, there is a part of our brain called the amygdala or amygdalae. There are two of them. Amygdalae, that's the center of our fight or flight response. And if that bear walked in the room, that amygdala is going to send a message to our adrenal glands. It's going to shoot a message that says, watch out. And we're either going to fight this bear, we're going to freeze, or we're going to run from this bear. Fight, flight, or freeze response. Well, in the same way, in the same way, if we looked at a brain scan and that bear could trigger the fight or flight response, the fight or flight response is equally triggered when someone threatens our ego. And it's very, very powerful. I always tell people in a humorous way, like think about your loved one saying to you, so just as that bear can trigger that fight or flight, what if your loved one looks at you and says, we need to talk. And you're like, oh wait, what? Just tell me, what is it? <laughs> like uh, you're already defensive. And so knowing that the ego, when our ego feels attacked or threatened, then we get defensive. And the question is, how do we get around that defensiveness? And so I have a very pragmatic way of doing it. When I was young, my parents would have me read stuff that was pretty advanced at times. And I remember encountering this one philosopher, GWF Hegel, and when I read it, I thought it was so convoluted. I'll never forget. I threw the book down and I said, when I get older, I will never make things this complicated for people. <laughs> and I literally spent my career trying to make esoteric subjects super simple for people. So when it comes to yield theory, it comes down to doing three things. I always say, listen, be skeptical of others, be skeptical of everything I teach, but also be skeptical of your own ego because your own ego is trying to tell you you're right, you have nothing else to learn and you got to challenge it. So I'm no different. I practice what I teach and I challenge my ego and I said, what is this yield theory? Like, what do I really do? What do I do? And I realized I do three things. I listen, I validate, and I explore options. That's it, those three things. Those are the three core actions of the old theory. Listen, validate, and explore options. And I have to tell you, about 10 years ago, I was speaking at this mental health conference. There are about 500 people there. And at the break, a woman came up to me and she was super condescending to me, which is always fun when you gotta encounter that. But she looked at me and she said, that's it, that's your big theory, three things. And I said, yes, ma'am, but if you think about it, all Bruce Lee ever did was move, block, and hit, and he did pretty well for himself. So <laughs> yes, it does come down to those three core actions, but it's how you listen, how you validate, and how you explore options that makes all the difference in the world. And the truth is that, and I feel it's kind of fun to share it with someone like you who has the lived experience and knowledge of the psyche. But the truth is that yes, those are the three core actions and they really are that clear. However, there are seven fundamental components that drive the way we listen, validate, explore options. And that's where we can go pretty deep, pretty fast into the human psyche. But at the end of the day, my quick way of explaining this is this. The reason why I make it so clear is this, in the middle of a crisis, and I deal with real world crises where someone's life could be threatened and we've got to communicate quickly and effectively. And so what I say, so I specifically teach what I mean by listening. And by listening, I explain it by saying, if you have a box and as a human being, you're only gonna see one or two sides of a box in a given moment. So let's say whatever someone's talking to you, I imagine they're on a different side of the box. And even though my ego might want to say to me, well, you've been all around the box. Well, the box is a human psyche, so it's not possible. I'm not omniscient. So I have to listen with the humility of saying, I don't know what's on your side of the box. Even if my ego wants to say, I already know what you're going to say. I don't know what's on your side of the box. And so I want to listen with the humility of not knowing, but the curiosity of wanting to know. 
So teach me, teach me your perspective, teach me your side. So I listen in that way. And then the next step is validate, which means and to validate in yield theory, what we teach is imagine you lived every day as that other person. So not just walk the metaphorical mile in their shoes, but you had their cognitive functioning, you had their affective range, their ability to experience emotions and their life experiences. And when I really put myself behind other people's eyes in that way, I say, how can I ever say that I would have made a different decision from what they made? And the point of this exercise is not to say, I get it. The point is to say, it helps me wipe away judgment. So I wipe away judgment there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I say, now I'm listening and I validate them, which means I'm going to acknowledge what they're talking about. And a lot of people get confused. I do a lot of trainings with police officers, corrections officers, so they can get, hey, why do we have to listen? And, and what is this really, you know? And I say, listen, you don't have to give in to what someone's demanding to validate how they feel. Someone can be really angry and you can acknowledge that anger. That doesn't mean you're giving them whatever they're demanding. So I'm gonna listen, I'm gonna validate, and then I'm gonna explore options. And I specifically phrase it that way for a reason. The past is gone, we can't get one single second of it back. I'm not gonna waste time with what should have been said or should have been done. I'm gonna say, what can we do from this moment forward? And again, that's all we look at. What can I do from this moment forward? And then since I do so much work in the world of sports psychology and have my whole career, I kind of created a yield theory self-assessment, which is a simple three question way of looking at this. And after every interaction, I simply ask myself, what did I do that was effective in this communication? What did I do that was ineffective? And what can I do more effectively in the future? And if you constantly looking at that as a growth model, almost like game film, then it's not about somebody's right and someone's wrong. We're simply going, is the what I'm saying effective or not? Let me give you a story that can exemplify this. I'm doing a lot of talking, so is that okay? It's perfect, perfect. I want to go back to the lady that came up to you at the conference. Can we finish that segment before we go? Yes, into yes, yes, yes. I kind of felt sad when you said that, that she said, this is your big theory that you're going to listen, validate, and explore options. Because when I hear that, like, if we all did that, we would have world peace. Like that is no small thing. That's very meaningful to me. And again, you and I seem to connect instantly when we start talking. The lived experience of practicing yoga, you get that. That like if you really listen to someone, you will cut through the projections, everything else, and you will get to, my goodness, from their perspective, they feel the way they feel. They're not wrong or bad for it. And there are reasons why. I tell people, my job is to explain human behavior. It's not to excuse it. Because you have to imagine, I work with people who are serial murderers, serial rapists. They do really horrific things. And so people can interpret that initially when I understand that behavior as saying, I'm excusing it. And no, I don't condone violence in any way, shape, or form. We literally, our daughter is 18 years old, but growing up, we never, not only never hit her or spanked her, we never even yelled at her. Like quite literally, my job was to teach her through peace. So I don't condone violence in any way. And I would never excuse one second of violence, but I can't explain why one thing led to another. Yeah. And when you truly listen to people, you understand it. And hey, listen, you set firm boundaries, you clear with your boundaries, it's healthy to have good boundaries and stick up for yourself. But listening to someone doesn't mean you have to give in. It simply means it helps you understand. So I appreciate your reaction to that because I do think that when you really get it, it's very profound of saying this. But I wanted to make it simple enough that officers in crisis could go, if the person keeps escalating, they could go, well, listen, validate, explore options. What am I not doing? Well, maybe I'm not listening. Mm. Cool. Get back to that. <laughs> yeah. When their nervous system is dysregulated, you need three quick words to bring your prefrontal cortex back online. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And when you really sit and you see the seven fundamental components where acceptance, authenticity, compassion, conscious education, creativity, mindfulness, and non-attachment. So when you dive into all seven of those, and, and I look at it almost like granite, the way granite has different elements and they all come together to make a very strong rock, all these different components come together to help you listen, validate, and explore options. 
in the most effective way possible. But the story I was going to tell you that is a quick, fun way to get what yield theory is, is this. So there was a man who was charged with leading a bunch of people up a mountain. So he takes off, he starts running up the mountain. He gets to the top of the mountain. Nobody's with him. Like literally they're all at the bottom of the mountain. So he starts screaming at them. You should be up here with me. You should have came the way I came. I had it tough. I started down there. And he's yelling all this logical stuff about what they should have done, but they can't even see him, let alone hear him. So he becomes known as the fool on the mountain. And if he really wanted to lead those people, once he was up there, the only thing he could do was have the self-discipline to leave where he was and go meet them where they are, if he really wanted to meet them. Now, when we hear the fool on the mountain, sometimes we think it's a person out there somewhere. But how many times have you and I talked at somebody well, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have done that. And we're talking at them. And in those moments, we are no different than the fool on the mountain. So what I lead and I do in my own life and I practice and I teach people, have the self-discipline to leave where we are, go meet others where they are and listen, truly listen. Let me hear where your perspective is and let me validate that because neurologically, here's what happens. When someone's really angry, and you come up to them, for instance, it's so silly, but it's still done everywhere. I do trainings with security officers. And when I do this, they laugh, but then I ask them to put their hands up if they do it. And like three fourths of them put their hands up. I say, how many of you walk up to somebody and say, you need to calm down? And they'll be like, oh, I do. Okay. When in the history of humanity has that ever worked? Like when you're really angry and someone says you need to calm down, are you like, oh yeah, you're right. I do. I didn't think about that. <laughs> no, <when> someone tell, <laughs> they tell you to calm down. You get mad. It's infuriating when someone it's, says that to you. Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> instead of saying, so that's basically being the fool on the mountain, you need to calm down. Instead you go, tell me what's going on. And by taking that moment and they get it off their chest, the confusion at the initial training usually takes place when people are steeped in, again, anxiety, depression, anger, and fear, they'll say something like, so we just give them whatever they want? No, we have very strict consequences and, and consistency and yield theory. It's not giving what they want, it's listening and invalidating that, recognizing there's a reason why they feel the way they do. And once you validate that neurologically, what I call it, drain the limbic system. And uh, I would clap to make sure nobody's daydreaming on this part because I don't want people to say, I, yeah, I don't want people to say, I think Dr. Conti thinks the brain's filled with water, but imagine that your limbic system, your emotional system is filled up with water and you turn on a spigot and a little bit of water comes out and you hurry up and turn it off. Well, you didn't drain it. It's still got all that water in there. So if you really want to drain it, you got to turn that spigot on, let it drain out. And that's the metaphor for if your emotional system's filled up, one statement of validation, oh, you seem angry. That's not enough. You don't validate until you say, I validated and check some bureaucratic box. You validate until the other person feels validated. And what'll happen neurologically is they drain that limbic system. Now they're in their frontal cortex and they're more prepared to make better decisions, better long-term decisions. So that's what that's about. And yeah, that fool in the mountain, it's interesting. It's funny, it's humorous. I always reference it as an old ancient Zen tale, but I actually made it up. <laughs> it's the point of, <laughs> carries more credibility. You're like this old Zen tale, but I love to tell stories and write them and make them up. I feel very emotional thinking about our men and women in blue learning all of this. Are you being asked to come all over the country to do this? And why isn't our entire police force, maybe even military being trained in this type of yield theory? I think more and more people are learning about it and bringing me in. I do trainings at the Texas police officers and their crisis intervention team. But my goal is to just forming this International Yield Theory Institute where we're training people to teach yield theory because right now, it's in prisons and it's in different states and there's only one of me. So I'm right. training people to do it so they can go out and teach yield theory. I've been maybe slower to do that for this reason. I care very much about practicing yield theory with fidelity. And so non-attachment is one of the most difficult aspects to be challenged in the moment when people are angry with you and to be non-attached. You know what? You're absolutely right. Like it's very possible. Like, you know, people, just didn't want to see me. I got 
I saw most people who were mandated to be there, whether it was people who went to prison or jail, then got sentenced to 52 weeks of anger management. You know how angry they are for that. And when I first started doing in-home counseling back in the 90s, where teenagers had to see a counselor, they didn't want to see me. So I really spent a career working with mandated people, or I go into work with corrections officers, and their first thought is, this is a bunch of BS. And so I'm used to meeting people where they are with that resistance. And instead of me coming in and going, well, you should like this, I go, yeah, maybe it's a bunch of BS. I'm not attached to it. Like, maybe it is. I'd love for you to listen and see a different side of the box. But if you're stuck in a spot where you don't want to, that's cool too. So I'm just not attached to it and I practice that. And I want people who go out and teach yield theory to practice that non-attachment piece. And we're getting there. We have some good trainers who are on the verge of being able to go out there and do that. So I would love for more police departments to find out about this. I just started doing a training with security officers and the biggest private security company that does that. And I'd love to keep doing it more. I'd love to keep doing it more. Well, one of the most humbling experiences that I've had, we had a International Yield Theory Institute initial meeting and one of the people there is a police officer in Texas. And he told the group how he encountered my work was he was looking at a YouTube video. I have a bunch of YouTube videos, but he was watching one of my videos and he said, I watched it probably eight times in a row. And I literally got called to a scene where a young man had a gun, was in his car. And he said, had it been any other situation in the past, I would have gone in and there was a good chance the kid would have ended up shot. And he said, but I went in and I literally did exactly what you said verbatim in that video and it saved that young man's life. And it was kind of emotional for all of us to hear that. And I said, I'm really blown away and honored that that could happen from that. So there is a path. Like I do this with real world situations. There's no pretentiousness about this approach. I literally come back time and again. Am I listening effectively? Am I hearing you? Can I set my own ego aside and say, let me meet you where you are. Teach me, teach me what's going on in your experience. And again, we can still set very firm boundaries. If you do this, this is the consequence. But I would rather have people understand their consequence than blindly go in and be reactive and then have a consequence they didn't see coming. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to send a few people your way that uh, would be excellent trainers. We have people who are yoga therapists that want to do work in the police departments and military. So I'm going to spread your your message far and wide. Thank and you. Can we hear about your website, where we can find you, how we can watch your YouTube videos? What do you think? Yes, definitely. My website is Dr. Christian Conti and drchristianconti.com. And uh, YouTube, if you just go to YouTube and type in my name, I believe it's YouTube slash Dr. Christian Conti. But I think we have about 125,000 subscribers. I feel really fortunate time and again. I'll tell you what happened with YouTube. I saw a young man wrote into me and he said he was critically injured in a suicide bombing. And he watched one of my videos and it helped him significantly with his anxiety. So he said, would you make a video for post-traumatic stress disorder? And I'll never forget, like I got out of my office, I went and see my wife, I was like, this is unbelievable. Here's a person I never would have encountered in my life. He was helped, he's going through so much agony. So heck yeah, I'm gonna do it. So I made a video for him on it, workaholic, and I'm definitely got a 75 things going on at once. So one of the things I've had a shortcoming in is posting consistently, but I just built this studio in my home and we're gonna start to post a couple of videos from here and now I'm gonna be more consistent with it. So meeting people like you who are kind enough to just some of the words you've said are super helpful for me. So I do wanna continue to make those videos more consistent. So yeah, there's YouTube. And then I even did a Patreon page where I'll do extra videos that aren't even, that go a little longer that aren't even on YouTube. I've been really conscious about trying to make my videos concise on YouTube. I don't like to waste anybody's time, but I'm trying to also find the balance in being a little bit more less formal and just talking. So I'm trying to do that more for the Patreon page. And is your Patreon page Christian Conti also? Yeah, everything's Dr. Christian Conti, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, everything, even TikToks, Dr. Christian Conti, Facebook, Instagram. The only thing is Twitter which is Dr. Underscore Conti. And I'll tell you how I've used Twitter for the last 10 years. 
I literally just wake up every morning. I meditate. I do something called seven breaths meditation. People can read about it walking through anger. It's a form of Tonglin and we're breathing in the pain and suffering of others and breathing back healing energy to them. So I do that every morning. And then I imagine I'm sitting in front of the whole world and I think, how can I say something that might be helpful? And so that's how I've used that. I'm probably on it for a total of 13 seconds a day. I literally just make my statement posted and go out of there. So I'm not really interactive or anything on there. Maybe I should learn how to be, and I'm open to that. But for now, I just use it as a way to say, how can I, if someone's going to come across a thread of information, can I add a piece of consciousness to their day? And that's how I've used it. I love that. Well, thank you for being with us today. It's really been an honor. I really didn't know where this was going to end up. And I feel pretty emotional right now. I think I'm going to head over to YouTube and watch some of your content. Well, I think energy is so genuine and your energy is phenomenal. Like your kindness is very evident. And we just met like minutes before we started. It's a wonderful connection. I think your audience is blessed to get to see your presence and hear your presence in this podcast. So thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate that you would, you know, invite me on here, even not knowing and then saying, okay, what's going to happen, but you trusted in it. So thank you. Thank you. And moving to Minneapolis, I have a few little connections in the police department there. So you never know, we might actually meet in person. Awesome. That's great. Thank you. If I can do anything to help you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you. Wow, that was such an amazing interview that's going to sit with me all day and into the weekend. And I think, you know, the things that really touched me were this yield theory, this three-step yield theory. And to truly listen to one another, to take one another's perspective and set boundaries, just because you're Imagining what life would be like from their perspective doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. And then to explore options together. I just think of all of the difficulties I've had in communication with people, in work environments, in home. I think boiling it down to those three steps would be so amazing. And I think he's right. When we're in our fight or flight or freeze or appease mode, We just need simple things to bring our thinking logical brain, the prefrontal cortex back online, instead of just letting our emotions and our amygdala kind of take over. So I'm really excited about this. I think the the LVE, listen, validate, explore. I'm going to start working with that myself. I think that's the best we can do is just try these things on and start seeing how it goes. You know, the thing that you might have to be a little careful with is if you're the only one doing it and maybe you're trying to do this with a narcissist or something, it's a very fine line to know when you need to step back and protect yourself versus when you can truly engage with someone on a heart-to-heart human level. So I encourage all of us to go watch Dr. Conti on YouTube. I'm going to put that in the show notes for you just to reinforce what he's talked about today. And I think for all of us yoga people that are listening, this is the application of living our yoga. And as TKV Deskachar often said, yoga is relationship. And you can tell how your yoga is working for you or not working for you, depending on how your relationships are. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for coming today. We'll see you next week. It's been our pleasure to be with you during this time, and I hope it's been nourishing for you. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.